Well, friends, I want to invite you to take your Bibles now and turn over to Hosea, one of the minor prophets. Hosea chapter 11 is where we're going to be spending our time together this morning. Uh, You'll find that passage on page 709 of the little Bible that should be in arm's reach of you on the back of the pew or back of the chair. 709 is is where you'll find the passage we're going to look at together this morning. This December, uh, we've been using the first couple chapters of Matthew's gospel as our tour guide into some of the prophecies about the coming of Jesus. Uh, And even though the grocery stores have already stocked up their seasonal shelves with Valentine's candy by this morning, we want to spend one more week celebrating this story together. Because friends, like I've said before, all of our hope in life and in death depends on the coming of Jesus. That was true long before December rolled around. It will be true in January. It's, it's our hope uh, all built into the reasons why Jesus came to us in the first place. So I want to I spend the next few moments helping you to understand that more deeply through one of the prophets that Matthew used to explain it all to us. Uh, it's easy to sentimentalize the Christmas story. I'm probably not the only one who does that, right? It's easy to focus on uh, the soft light of the shining star, the soothing sounds of of an angel's song, or the cooing of the little chubby baby, or the gentle presence of Mary and Joseph. It's easy to think about the shepherd boys and the bleeding lambs and all that makes that night feel so familiar to those of us especially who've grown up hearing about it and recounting it over and over again through our family traditions. But honestly, it may be a little bit more accurate to think about the coming of Jesus as something like the D-Day invasion. (laughs) The invasion of a sweet little baby as paratrooper dropping in behind enemy lines in a raging war for life or death. That's really a lot closer to the setting in which Jesus was born. If you think I'm over-dramatizing that a little bit, you might be right. Preachers are bad about that. You know, we love to dramatize things to make a point. But, But just think about the story told in Matthew chapter 2. No sooner has Jesus been born in Bethlehem than you hear about this group of men from the east arriving in Jerusalem. They've come on a quest. They're following a star. They're looking for a promised king. And then they ask the wrong man for directions. Somehow word comes to Herod the king, a wicked king, if ever there was one. He knows what they're looking for, a threat to his throne. He's not going to stand for it. He asks his priests and his scribes, where was the promised one, the Messiah, the Christ? Where was he to be born? He figures out the timing of the star by talking to these wise men and then sends his shock troops into Bethlehem to murder every boy under two. There's nothing sentimental about that story. Just think about that for a minute. Try to imagine that story as true. Try to imagine the horror for those precious kids, for their helpless parents as they watched it happen. I I can't imagine that. Jesus only survives in that story because Joseph is warned in a dream to go to Egypt until things die down. Jesus was born in in a war zone. Jesus was dropped in behind enemy lines and he was dropped in in a war zone behind enemy lines because he was coming on a rescue mission to rescue his brothers and sisters who were pinned down and couldn't escape even though he knew that his mission was going to cost him his life. Friends, the purpose and the power behind this rescue mission, the meaning and the hope of Christmas, it's all packed into the passage I want to open for you this morning. It's a passage that Matthew quotes in Matthew chapter 2 to explain why Jesus went into and out of Egypt 
right after his birth. See, for Matthew, he knew that Jesus wasn't just going into Egypt and back out again to dodge a bullet from Herod. He was going to point to, through a powerful symbol, the reason he came in the first place. And we can see this message for ourselves by taking a deeper look at the prophet Matthew quoted from the book of Hosea. This morning, I just wanna read from verses one to nine from Hosea chapter 11. I'm gonna ask you to stand with me if you're able in honor of God's word while I do that. And then we'll walk through these wonderful verses together. Friends, this, this is the word of the Lord to us. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they didn't know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the most high, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Point number one this morning, friends, the truth about God. The truth about God. Here it is. When his people are in trouble, he delivers them. When his people are in trouble, he delivers them. That's the truth about God. Matthew quotes from Hosea 11.1. When he talks about Jesus going into Egypt to escape from Herod, he says, this was to fulfill what the prophet said, out of Egypt, I have called my son. He was talking about Hosea 11.1. It's a verse that, that looks back to the story of the Exodus, the most foundational story in all of Israel's history. In a way, it's the story that made them a people in the first place. And Matthew is quoting it right here at the beginning of his gospel in chapter two to connect the dots between what happened there back in Egypt and what's happening here right now through Jesus. What happened there? Well, I bet you guys can remember. I bet you guys know the story of the Exodus. Kids, raise your hand for me. If you've ever heard the story of the Exodus, what happened when, when Israel was stuck in Egypt? Can you raise your hand if you've heard that story? I bet a few more of you have heard it than that. It's one of the most wonderful stories in all the Bible. There was a time, there was a time when the people of Israel, all of Abraham's and Jacob's grandsons and granddaughters were living in Egypt, but it wasn't really their land. Egypt was never really their home. And at one point there got to be so many of them there that the wicked king of Egypt decided to stop them from growing. He didn't want any more babies to be born to Israel. He decided instead 
to use them. All those people who were living there to build up his cities. He made them slaves, every one of them. And he worked them so hard that they just couldn't stand it. Here's what, here's what Exodus chapter 2 says. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. See, the wicked king Pharaoh, he thought that those people belonged to him. He could do whatever he wanted to do with them because ultimately they were his. But God knew they were his people. God knew better and loved them. And that's why God said no to Pharaoh. Nobody gets to do that to my people. I bet you remember what happened next. God sent Moses to warn Pharaoh, if you don't let my people go, you'll be sorry. Pharaoh, of course, didn't hear. He didn't want to listen. He didn't let them go. So God brings plague after plague after plague on the people of Egypt to show Pharaoh and everybody else who's really in charge and who these people really belong to. By his power, when his people were in trouble, God saw them in trouble. He loved them and he brought them right out of Egypt. Now, here's the, here's the thing you need to know about this story. The Bible says that God did that for Israel and Egypt so they would always know who he is, always. He's a God of steadfast love and mercy. He's a God who always takes care of his people. See, sometimes, sometimes good things can happen just out of nowhere, completely random. One time me and Walter were going to a Vanderbilt game and we only had one ticket. And we were walking up to the stadium and I guess we looked pitiful or forlorn, I don't know. But somebody walked up to us and said, hey, do you need an extra ticket? I've got an extra ticket. And I said, yeah, I need an extra ticket. It gave me the ticket. And we had the two tickets we needed to get into that game. It's amazing. We were so happy about that. But, but that was a one-time thing. I mean, I, I have no reason to expect that, that next time I'll get another free ticket. I, in fact, I should just expect the opposite. Don't go to a Vanderbilt game unless you got the number of tickets you need to get your son in. I mean, it'd be terrible if you had to stay outside the stadium while you watch the game and, and, and wait for you to get out. Next time I need to go ready because probably the, even, if the, even if that same guy was there again and even if that same guy happened to have a spare ticket and even if that same guy saw me coming again, I have no reason to believe he'd want to give it to me and probably the worst possible thing I could do was expect him to because that'd just come off as annoying if I went up and asked him for it. Sometimes good things just happen out of nowhere. You can't expect them to happen again. But the story of the Exodus, when God looked on his people, when they were in trouble, saw them, loved them, and saved them. That was a good thing that happened on purpose to make a point that lasts forever. This is who God is. He saved them when they were in Egypt so that when we think of God, we think of him as one who hears, as one who cares, as one who saves. Kids, how many of you, I'm gonna ask you to raise your hand again. You kids listen? How many of you kids have ever fallen down and scraped your knee? Raise your hand if you've ever fallen down. Yeah, all of you guys have done that. How many of you kids have ever woken up in the middle of the night and you had a bad dream? Yeah, I thought so. But it's happened a bunch of times, hasn't it? 
not just once. And every time it's happened, every time you've fallen down and scraped your knee, every time you've woken up in the middle of the night and had a bad dream, I bet you I know what happened next. I bet you cried out for your mama or your daddy, didn't you? You cried as loud as you could. And I bet you when you cried out to them, as long as they woke up, if they actually heard you, I bet every single time they came to help you, didn't they? To hold you, to comfort you when you were upset. And you know why they do that? Every single time you need them, they do it because it's just in their nature. They love you. They're your parents. This is what they do. They're always watching and always listening. And if you're in trouble, they're coming. They're coming to help you. And don't anybody try to stop them. And the main point of the Exodus story is that this is what God is like. This is who God is. He saved him not just that one time, but because that's just what he does. You can bank on it. It's in God's nature to rescue God's people because of God's great love. That's what makes him such an amazing God. That's what makes him so glorious, so worthy, the praises we give to him. Every time we come here on Sunday, we praise him for this love that's just who he is. It is a good thing to be part of this people, loved by this God. And that's what Hosea is thinking of in chapter 11, verse 1. And when Matthew quotes that verse, he's telling us to think, here we go again. Jesus is here because when God's people are in trouble, God delivers them. Jesus goes into Egypt and back out of Egypt, not just to dodge this bullet from Herod, but as a sign of what he's come to do. He's come on another rescue mission, just like the one that Moses went on. A mission behind enemy lines because his brothers and his sisters need him. They're in trouble. And when God's people are in trouble, he delivers them. That's the truth about God. That's point number one. But point number one leads to point number two, a question for God. A question for God. Here's the question. What about when their trouble is their fault? What does God do then? I mean, it's clear enough that Matthew had the Exodus story and all that it means on his mind when he chose to quote what he quoted in chapter two. But to me, what's really interesting about that quote is where he quoted from. Because Matthew could have quoted about the Exodus from a ton of places in the Old Testament. And the Bible talks about the Exodus all over the place. You can, he could have quoted maybe from like the book of Exodus itself, for example. That would have been a good natural place to quote from. He could have quoted from any number of, of, of Psalms. The Psalms are always singing to God about how he delivered Israel when they were in Egypt. There's a lot of places he could have chosen to quote from. But Matthew chose to quote from Hosea. And that's because Hosea's prophecy raises this crucial question about God. If Exodus showed us that when God's people are in trouble, God delivers them, Hosea raises this question. What about when their trouble is their own fault? Let me me tell you just real briefly, let me tell you a little bit more about what Hosea is all about before we go back into Hosea 11 and look at some of these verses together. By the time Hosea gave this prophecy, Many, 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 many years had passed since God delivered Israel out of Egypt. That was a long time ago, a distant memory. Just like God had promised, he brought them into a good land after he saved them out of Egypt. 
He was with them every step of the way, providing food straight out of heaven, straight into their bellies. And once they were settled in this good land, he gave them a good king and he gave them a temple where they could worship him and know that he was with them always. But, but here's the thing about Israel. That was never enough for them. No matter what God gave them, they always wanted more and more and more and more often than not to get more and more and more. They turned to the false gods that their neighbors worshiped. They thought those gods would be easier to control that through those gods, they could get what they always wanted for themselves. And they worshiped those gods instead of the God who brought them out of Egypt. That's why when the people of Israel were do, that's what the people of Israel rather were doing when Hosea gave his prophecy. It was a time with lots and lots of wealth in Israel. Things looked to be going great. And they gave all the credit for what they had to these false gods that they'd started to worship. And the fact that things were going so great only meant they worshiped those gods more and more and more. Here's how the Lord puts it. When he speaks to Israel earlier in the book of Hosea, this is from chapter two, the Lord says, she, talking about Israel, did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine and the oil and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Do you see the betrayal in that? God gives them all these good things. They take them and offer them as sacrifices to Baal as if Baal is the one who gave them to them. They use God's gifts to serve a false God. It's heartbreaking. Well, listen to what God says in chapter 13. He says, but, but I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. He's going right back to that Exodus story. I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. You know no God but me. And besides me, there is no savior, the Lord says. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, talking about Israel again, when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. As soon as they had a full belly, they moved on from God because they didn't love him. They loved what they got from him. Now come back to Hosea chapter 11 with me, the text that I read earlier. You can see now that there is pain in this look back at the Exodus. Go back to verses one and two. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Going back to that tender, sweet time when they were just newly made God's people. Out of Egypt, I called my son. This is all retrospective. Verse two takes us into the now. But the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Look at the pain in verses three and four. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Ephraim's just another name for Israel at that time, the northern kingdoms. I took them up by their arms, but they didn't know that I healed them. It's the Lord picturing his care for Israel like a, like a father for a small child, training him to walk, being patient and tender with him in his need and weakness, all the while being completely neglected as the source of every good thing. I led them with cords of kindness, the Lord says, with the bands of love and became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. I bent down to them and fed them. He literally did. He sent manna and quail from heaven. It's like, it's like feeding a little baby with a spoonful of baby food. He, he just put it right there in front of them. All they had to do was swallow. But 
they rejected him for gods they made with their own hands. And that's when Hosea looks to what will happen next. Not a return to Egypt, but a new captivity, an exile, another wilderness. Verse 5, they shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. Friend, that is exactly what happened. Soon after Hosea gives this promise, the kingdom of Assyria attacks the northern kingdom of Israel and takes their people away, many of them into captivity. Just over 100 years later, same thing happens in the southern part of Israel. Jerusalem itself, the mighty city, falls to the Babylonians and many of those people were carried away. It's deja vu all over again. Not Egypt, but right back into captivity. God's people would once more be in trouble. And Hosea raises the question. What about when their trouble is their own fault? What will God do then? I mean, it's one thing when Israel is captive in Egypt. Clearly, they're they're the victim. There's just no two ways about it. They were innocent. They were put under the thumb of this big bully because they couldn't do anything to stop him. They were too little. They had no way to fight back. So it makes sense in a way that God would rescue them then. But this time, this mess, well, this one came not even just from a foolish mistake. This time they're in trouble because they chose to betray him. They wanted to. They abandoned God despite how faithful he had always been to them. So what now? What about when the trouble they're in is their own fault? That leads to point three. We've seen a truth from God. We've seen the question for God. Now hear the answer from God. The answer from God is simply this. Even then, even when the trouble of my people is their own fault, even then I will deliver them. The book of Hosea begins with an incredible, even shocking illustration of what's going on and what God plans to do about it. At the very beginning of this book, we don't have time for me to read these chapters to you. I want to encourage you to read them this afternoon. Phenomenal illustration, vivid, poignant illustration from the first three chapters of the book of Hosea. Be well worth your time this afternoon as a follow-up to what you're hearing now. At the very beginning of this book, God commands Hosea, his prophet, to marry a prostitute, to love her, to care for her, knowing full well that she wouldn't be faithful to him. It's as if God was saying to his prophet, before you can speak for me to my people, I want you to know what it's like to love them. God had loved them. He provided for them. He would cared for them. But Israel saw all of that and said, I think I'd rather sell myself to other gods than stay with you. I'd rather have that life in life as your people. That's exactly what happens to Hosea and his wife. He marries a wife named Gomer. They have children together. He loves her. And then she leaves him. She chooses to walk away from the comfort and security of the home they built together and chooses her life as a prostitute to her life as Hosea's wife. And by chapter three, Gomer has fallen into some form of slavery with a debt hanging over her head that she could not pay on her own. And it's at that point in Hosea chapter three that the Lord speaks to Hosea and tells him 
go get her. Go get your wife. Go get this woman that you love, this woman who said no thanks, this woman who chose slavery over your love. Go pay her debt. Go buy her out of slavery and love her still. That's exactly what Hosea does. Now look with me at chapter 11, verses eight and nine. This is the Lord speaking again right after his promise that that Israel would be punished for their sin. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? The answer to all of those questions is, I, I can't. I can't give you up. You're Israel. You're my people. My heart recoils within me, the Lord says, coming to us on our level with words we can understand to describe his inner life. My heart recoils within me. I cannot do it. My compassion grows warm and tender. When I see my people in trouble, I cannot not deliver them. For I am God and not a man. I'm not like you. God's love doesn't change. When he sets it on you, it stays on you, no matter what. He stays faithful faithful even when his people are not. And when his people are in trouble, he delivers them no matter what. Friends, can you see? Can you see what this tells us about our God? Can you see why Matthew would start his story about Jesus with a quote from this book? There is no love like God's love. I mean, in a way, it was incredible enough to see what he did for Israel when they were stuck in Egypt. That was amazing. We saw there his compassion for them in their pain. They groaned to him. That's all they could do. Couldn't even put words to it. They just groaned. And that he heard it. He saw them in their need and he came to set them free. That was beautiful and glorious on its own. But there they were victims, plain and simple. Here they're guilty. That deliverance cost him nothing. He spoke and the plagues fall down from heaven. Here the cost is high. What if calling his son out of Egypt means sending his son to die? What then? Isn't that just chasing bad money with good? Hasn't he already done enough? And the answer that Matthew works with Hosea to make sure you understand today is yeah, even then he will redeem his people. As Matthew himself had put it in chapter one, verse 21, you will call his name Jesus, God saves, for he will save his people from their sins. So, can you see the encouragement in this message for me and you today? Can you see this encouragement at the end of a long year, facing another year of who knows what coming our way? Here's the encouragement. A God who did not spare his own son has not finished giving you good gifts. You can trust him with whatever's coming this next year. In a way, friends, we, we're all still living in a kind of exile. 
Even though we live on this side of Jesus coming for us, there's still a whole lot of promises that we haven't seen fulfilled yet. And there's still a whole lot wrong with this world in which we live. This world is a kind of wilderness. And we're groaning in it, aren't we? Aren't you groaning? Earlier we read from Romans chapter 8. Laney read for us that beautiful passage promising that God is always going to be with us and for us. Earlier in that chapter, just before the verses we read, Paul talks about the whole creation as groaning, just waiting and longing for the day when all God's promises to renew us are brought to pass. We are waiting patiently for the day that, here's how he puts it, creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption or decay. Are you groaning today with creation, waiting on that day? I bet you are. This week, our sister Lynn will mark the anniversary of her husband Bobby's passing one year ago. Just this past week, Dave Hunt marked the anniversary of his father's passing one year ago. How many of you spent yesterday rejoicing, enjoying the good times, but noticing the empty chairs, noticing the loved ones that are lost to you now? Our beloved sister, Sue Jeanette, she's not sitting on her pillow right back there on that pew because this precious woman of God has been in and out of the hospital for the last three months as her lungs and her heart cause her relentless problems. Meanwhile, here comes another surge. This virus that just won't leave us alone has disrupted so many plans for all of us who are worn out already and isolated and just sick and tired of thinking about all of it. And from all of this, there is just so much uncertainty all around us. Do you feel that? Are you groaning? Who knows what next year will bring? And sometimes, friends, sometimes it seems like the only certainty is that time just keeps on ticking, that things just keep on changing. And that even the good and best of gifts don't last in this broken and beautiful wilderness of a world. Sometimes it seems like that's the only certainty. But that is not the only certainty. Here's a certainty for you on this Christmas together. When God's people are in trouble, he delivers them. When God's people are in trouble, that's you. He delivers them always, no matter what. No matter how they got there, no matter what it costs, even when it costs him his son. Friend, if you're in Christ, he paid that cost for you. And nothing you face this year can separate you from his love. So will you pray with me now? that the Lord will hold us up and keep us going in the hope of that promise. Let's pray before we continue to sing. Father, we thank you for your love. We don't deserve it, but we can't live without it. And we accept it. We embrace it. We plunge ourselves into it and ask that you would help us by your spirit to remember it, to remember it always at every level of our lives on every day. We ask you to help us live in your love as our whole environment with the hope that nothing can separate us from you.
We pray this to you in the name of Jesus, your son, given for us. Amen.